This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, uh, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times radio app. A little bit croaky today. Went to see Elton John last night. There was a lot of singing. Anyway, coming up on uh, today's episode, as the government launches yet another knife crackdown, we're taking a look at zombie knives and the incredible loophole, which means you can still buy them uh, here in the UK. Uh, so that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But first, it's Tuesday, so it's time for these two. In a world of politics without the boring bits, get ready for blockbuster debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Do you know what film this is for, Henry? I don't, I'm afraid. (laughs) You don't know what this is for? No, I genuinely don't. It's Men in Black. When they said Men in Black, I've seen then. I've seen Men in Black two, but right. I've not seen Men in Black one. <laughs> I can't from memory. I can't remember. I mean, I but uh, but I worse. guess are you saying Danny is the Tommy Lee Jones Tommy to Lee my Jones. Will, Will Smith. Smith. Here's a trivia question for you: Who was Tommy Lee Jones's college roommate? This is presumably a political question. It is an American politician. Correct. 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 Oh, well done, Danny. Yeah. Very good. So you don't get that anywhere else, do you? Uh, Danny, have you seen Men in Black? Yes, and Men in Black 2. <laughs> uh, well, I've seen Men in Black 1 twice. Wow. Which means I've sort of seen Men in Black 4, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, which do you think was better, Danny? Uh, Men in Black, I, I, I think. I think, always, yes, most, most times. The, the except, for the Godfather, except for Godfather 2, which I actually I genuinely think was, probably was better than Godfather. I've never seen any of them. They're too long. Oh, you've got to see them, actually. <sighs> Even for the quality of the political metaphors. <laughs> Shrek 2 is also better than Shrek 1. That's my uh, hot uh, take. Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, because the, well, the, the graphics improve, don't they? That's, I just oh, yeah. think the plot's I, very see, good. See, I think, I think uh, Toy Story 3 might be the best of them. Is that right? Mm, <laughs> I, I prefer Toy Story 1. Okay, fine. Could we keep this up for the next half? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the plan, isn't it? Yeah, this is the idea. Let's, right, let's move on. It was all I quite attentive. What about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the prequel? I don't think we'll be watching that. 
Right, let's concentrate. Here we go. Let's talk about Rishi Sunak. Uh, and um, the rouse about his money coming back to his wealth, Henry, coming back to haunt him again this week. And the idea that uh, he's now being investigated for not declaring an interest because his wife had shares in a, a childcare company, uh, a nursery company, uh, and the government announced it's going to do something on nurseries. Yeah, so ostensibly this is not a row about Rishi Sunak's wealth. It is, it, is a, it is simply a question of whether he has followed the rules around declarations of interest. Uh, it emerged that his wife has shares in one of the very few childcare companies in this country which will benefit from the subsidies announced in the budget. Uh, and there is a question over whether Rishi Sunak adequately declared that before Parliament. He says he adequately declared it under the separate ministerial process, and that was sufficient. Now, I imagine what's going to happen here is Rishi Sunak will get a light rap on the knuckles. Um, the Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards will say this was an inadvertent error, or you were wrongly advised by ministerial uh, ethics people. Uh, that's fine, we'll just add it to the register. But what I do think underlies this, though no one will quite say it, is a question of, what, or, or, you know, a particular reason why Labour are so keen to push it, is it just underlines to them the sense that Rishi Sunak and his wife in particular at Chartamurti, have a sort of unfathomable level of wealth. Um, and I, I really don't know whether that is of political disbenefit to the Conservatives. My hunch is that it's not really, mm. um, but certainly there are people in the Labour Party who, who think it is. What do you think about this, study? Whenever it comes up, when we do the monthly focus group, the thing that we, I found really striking is, by and large, people say... Well, sort of good for him. At least it means he's not in anyone else's pocket. You know, brackets like Boris Johnson having to get someone from the BBC to sort out his, his financial affairs, whatever. Um, and people don't seem to see it as being a problem, probably because they think that all politicians, rightly or wrongly, are out of touch, either because of their personal income or just because they think politicians are out of touch. So it doesn't seem to necessarily damage him. But what do you, I don't know what you think. So that would have been my guess as to what the focus groups will say, but it's very interesting that that's what they do say. Sometimes you can get these things wrong. And one of the experiences of focus groups is they're very consistent. So if people are saying that, you've probably got the answer that, of the, to the question you're asking me. Um, I, I, I also think that um, these individual stories will not be huge. They're a little bit to the Tory disbenefit, right? That's, that's just the, because that's obviously the nature of the story they are. They're a little bit reduces momentum. Um, you know, there's always a uh, there's always a danger you get stuck in it in a big way. But providing that doesn't happen, I suspect this story will not be noticed by very many people. That is not a comment on its relevance or importance or the ethics of it. It's just a an empirical comment about how these things affect the bottom line in elections. Most people don't notice them. And I do, you know, with the point that you made about, about uh, wealth, I remember that when David Cameron, everyone used to say he went to Eton, this was of huge importance to other people who went to slightly different public schools <laughs> and, 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 and who found Eton ridiculously posh. Right? But if you didn't, uh, it turns out that, 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 that <clears throat> lots of those people say, well, at least he's well-educated. I mean, this actually came up a lot in, um, in, in, in focus group yeah. polling that didn't damage him in the way that you would have thought it did. And exactly the same way, um, I'm not sure how much... Uh, Rishi Sunak appears rich to people compared with Keir Starmer. Yeah. That's not to say that, of course, if you and I look at it, he is vastly wealthier than than um, than than Keir Starmer. And actually, that sort of wealth is a bit of an, it is, uh, you know, it does lift you out of problems 
of day-to-day life in a certain way that even Keir Starmer's wealth doesn't um, because it is of a different scale. But I don't know, and I'm not so sure that to most people really see it that way. I, I do think... All politicians are quite well off and posh, and he's just very well off and posh. I, I do think there is a contrast that Labour are trying to draw there a little bit subtly, but it is there. I mean, Keir Starmer, uh, and he gets mocked wrongly for this by the left, you know, always says... I'm the son of a toolmaker because I think he wants to, because I, well, I think from his sort of demeanour, from you know the the life and and um, dispositions of a, of a director of public prosecutions that he's had over the subsequent decades, you know, I don't think people would expect that. I don't think people would expect uh, Keir Starmer to to come from the sort of lower middle class uh, background that he does come from. Um, and he certainly is keen to draw that contrast. You know, you saw when he leaned into the private schools thing. Uh, at Prime Minister's questions late last year, and he made the point that um, that Rishi Sunak's, you know, parents in paying to go there, it was it was you know completely. He, he talked about Winchester having, I think, a rifle range. Mm. Um, so there, there, there I, I do think, and and I, the other thing that they mention now and then is is this question over Rishi Sunak being registered with a private GP. You know, yeah. and I imagine that you will get Labour saying in the next election, you know, he doesn't understand how bad the NHS is because unlike Keir Starmer, he doesn't use it. He doesn't it. use it, yeah. I mean, I suppose yeah. actually, Danny, of, of all the things which are going to make the next election tough for Rishi Sunak, this is his personal wealth, it yeah. might have a bit of an impact, but that's not the reason they're 15, 20 points behind in the polls. Correct. Not, not, I mean, he isn't the issue, right? Yeah. For the top party. Um, by the way, on the issue of Keir Starmer and Toolmaker, uh, you know, his only issue is he, he doesn't repeat it enough. I, I think it is of value to him in humanising him and giving his background. Um, and um, you just have to repeat that sort of stuff over and over again, particularly if it's not obvious to the sort of naked eye, as it were. So I, I actually think um, he's right to repeat it. He doesn't repeat it enough. And the finest political joke of the uh, year surely has to be Angela Rayner saying that Boris Johnson was also the son of a toolmaker. <laughs> <laughs> but Keir Starmer Star made the same joke in his party conference speech when he went on at length about his mum and his dad. I think I missed that when I was too busy hearing about the spinning Jenny and the shaping. My father's shaping something with a bucket of water, bucket of liquid. <laughs> it was very, it was a very long speech. <laughs> I mean, more pressing, Henry. But I do, I, oh, sorry, go on, Daddy. You know, I, I do. I don't think that's a mistake of his, though. I think you know, as much as we can sort of laugh at it, it's. First of all, it is actually interesting and yeah. relevant to his outlook, um, but also it's important in trying to make people understand who he is. So I think he's right, and people won't just pick that up by themselves. Um, and, you know, Ed Miliband wasn't going to keep repeating, I'm the son of a Marxist academic. Um, <laughs> it's not you know, it a particularly valuable thing, but son of a toolmaker, that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but more pressing for Rishi Sunak, uh, Henry, coming down the tracks is Dominic Raab. Which mm. we think might the report into his allegations of bullying might come as early as next week. Uh, I think it might come as early as this week, actually. Oh, really? Uh, from some reporting I was doing with my colleague Chris Smythe yesterday, um, certainly possible that it comes this week. Um, and from the people I've been speaking to, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure Rishi Sunak would like to keep hold of Dominic Raab, but there are not many people who think that is ultimately going to be the outcome. Uh, when he receives Adam Tolley Casey's report. Uh, and I think that will be um, a difficult moment for Rishi Sunak because um, he didn't inherit Dominic Raab as Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary. He didn't have to give him the Deputy Prime Minister title that he'd held mm. under Boris Johnson. I mean, I do think they have a slightly unusual 
uh, relationship in that a year ago, if you'd asked me, is Rishi Sunak especially close to Dominic Raab, I think I'd have said no. And I think privately, both of them would have said no. Um, but Dominic Raab decided to back Rishi Sunak in that leadership election, the first leadership election. Um, but the, the crucial bond they have is that in the summer, when it became clear that Liz Truss was going to win, um, you know, I remember speaking to people on the Sunak campaign and basically all of their top surrogates, as they'd call them in America, um, you know, whenever they needed them to go on a broadcast round or write an op-ed or whatever, they'd say, oh, um, yeah, no, my phone wasn't working for the last week. I'm really <laughs> no, no, sorry no, no, about no, that. Yeah. And Dominic Raab was, was one of two going. or three and exceptions. Went, and he really went for it. Right, even when it was clear that Liz Truss um, had won, he, he, he put his own view that Rishi Sunak ought to be Prime Minister before, yeah. before self-preservation. And I think Sunak thinks very fondly upon that. But I think that does mean that should... Um, the report demand, in effect, that Rishi Sunak sacks Dominic Rubb. It's not going to be like Tony Blair sacking Peter Mandelson, yeah. you know, with, oh, with moist eyes. It isn't quite the same. So, but, but, but actually, I, I'll slight, a slight um, tweak to that. I, so when I spoke to, to, to Rishi about the leadership in 2016, um, I'm just trying to think when it was, but when I think, I think... Um, uh, he was sort of contemplating whether or not to support Dominic Raab in the leadership and said to me at the time, we are, when it was, when Boris won it, that was right, when he finally came out for Boris that, that year, so it was 2019, I'm sorry, but he, he was, Boris, Dominic Raab was definitely a possibility for him because he's always been actually politically reasonably close to him, but what they're, where you're right, Henry, is they're not very, they're not personally that close, because I think, I think that possibly is something to do with Dominic Raab is a personality and I think that he's not really the Deputy Prime Minister even though he seems to be Oliver Dowden is and no. the interesting thing will be whether or not um, Rishi decides to make Oliver Dowden now the Deputy Prime Minister that is, I think that is quite an important role it's, it, it's sometimes regarded as sort of irrelevant but actually it can be a critical political relationship inside the past where it hasn't been so much um, under the cut, you know, under Dominic Robb's tenure, either for Boris Johnson or for Rishi. So I wonder whether now it might be. And you either choose somebody who's very close to you, like Oliver Dowden, or you choose someone deliberately from another wing of the uh, party to kind of give you, or diff very different personalities yeah, to, yeah, yeah, to give you the, the sort of the yin and yang. Yeah. Um, just before we move on, anyway, we can't mention Rishi Sunak and Oliver Dowden without mentioning the triple headed comment piece well yeah no i mean if it, it, absolutely you, you secured that, that i secured yeah, in 2019 the moment boris johnson became um prime minister i think uh, yeah that's right rishi sunak oliver dowden and robert jenrick endorsing um boris johnson together and it wasn't just that they wrote this piece together i mean they had decided as a sort of three who to back yeah i mean if oliver dowden does end up as uh rishi sunak's um titular deputy prime minister as well as de facto deputy prime minister then i think robert jenrick might feel yeah. even more aggrieved that he's <laughs> that he uh, in the job of mopping up after suella brothman at the home yeah, office that is the but well, that is the close relationship of the 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 uh the general gave it width but oliver dowden is is yeah that questioned the closest person to rishi sunak in the in the cabinet and was before well there we are you see if you if you were reading red box back in 2019 you'd have had all that Somebody's texted in. Uh, Paddington 2 is better than just than Paddington 1, and Terminator 2 is better than Terminator 1. Uh, no name on that, though. Any views on that, Henry? 
uh, I've not seen any of those four films. I'm making myself out to sound like a complete philistine. I, d- I do like cinema, as they say. <laughs> but not uh, but in, but, the, in the original French. Well, I, 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 <laughs> nothing is more Henry Zeffman than not to have seen Men in Black, but still know that Al Gore was <laughs> Henry James's roommate. And I say that with love and affection because nothing would be more Daniel Finkelstein either. So um, <laughs> High praise. High praise. I, well, I think I know it because, uh, sorry, this, this is much more God. Tommy Lee Jones. I think Tommy Lee Jones made a speech in Al Gore's, not the nominating speech, but I think he introduced him at the 2000 Democratic Convention. Sort of, you know, my, my roommate and your next president. But he was, he was penny more to Al Gore's Andrew Leadsom. <laughs> I love when people use the word I think to a piece of information so obscure, they either <laughs> wouldn't know it at all or they're certain. <laughs> I've got it. Trying to play it. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. But yeah. Uh, right, very good. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, the suggestion the polls are narrowing a bit. There was one out yesterday from Redfield in Wilton, which had Labour's lead at just 12%, 12 percentage points. Yesterday, uh, this is Peter Manson on the show, uh, telling me he thought there was a 50-50 chance uh, between a, a Labour minority or majority government. Let's take a listen. As we stand at the moment, there's about an equal chance of a hung parliament uh, and uh, and Labour gaining mm. an overall uh, majority. Uh, I would not put money uh, on a Conservative re-election uh, at the next uh, election. Uh, I know they talk about a narrow path to victory. Well, in my view, it's very narrow, uh, and obviously it's worth talking about, but I don't think it's uh, really uh, uh, credible. What do you make of that, Danny? Uh, f- split between a Labour minority and a Labour majority. They need need to win so many seats just to get a majority of one Labour. They're starting so far behind. No, I don't think it's an un- I don't. I don't think that's an unreasonable calculation. I wouldn't call it fifty-fifty because there clearly is a finite chance of a Conservative Party winning, and I don't think it's completely zero, as Peter Man or near zero, as Peter Mandelson was suggesting. But it's low, you know. And I, I know that some. I think coffee house shot. Someone was telling me had had, had them at thir- you know said there was a thirty percent chance like, of the Tories w- winning a majority in that I think that's much much too high it's it's 10 percent or even below that um so then the rest of it yeah i think that's reasonable look all of it depends what you think is going to happen to the economy at the next general election if the uh economy if the economy starts to improve in the six months before the general election the conservative party will perform more strongly than it is at the moment and um you know you can see the real wage figures have fallen these are the big uh, in, in the last couple of months and yet the conservative poll poll has risen a bit so you can see that there is the capacity for the conservative party and you can see it also in the focus groups to do quite a bit better than it's doing at the moment i I rather thought it wouldn't um just because of all the institutional barriers to it doing so and its poor performance over the last uh four years but um now or three years um but now um it seems to be uh performing a bit better i could see it the much more likely thing is it removing Labour's chance of winning a majority at the moment, you'd think. So I think it's not a bad calculation. Yeah, yeah. Not bad. Um, Henry, I wrote my column a couple of weeks ago, slightly provocatively, but suggesting there might even be two elections next year. Actually, never mind 97 or 92, 1974 was the comparison, because Labour will probably emerge as the biggest party but not have a majority, and then Keir Starmer would have to go again. Uh, obviously, it depends when the first election is. If the first one isn't until October, then it probably might tip over. But am I mad? No. Uh, not least because you keep inviting me back. Or maybe that <laughs> shows that you are. No, no. I mean, I think it's certainly possible. I think the point that Danny has made before 
which is very important and which a lot of Westminster hasn't really woken up to, is that I think almost any configuration of a hung parliament means Keir Starmer as prime minister. Yes. I think the Tories are out of potential allies, uh, parliamentary allies, that is, in a way that they weren't in 2017 and obviously very much weren't the in DUP 2010. are very much not happy. Well, indeed. And, um, I'm not, yeah, I mean... I. I guess if they were just about close enough that the DUP, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think I think so. I think the Tories have to win a majority for for Rishi Sunak to remain prime minister, and I and I think, you know, I don't think Peter Mandelson is right that that is so remote as to be zero. But I do think that's an extremely remote possibility, at least as it stands. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can see a world in which in which um, Starmer would want to sort of go to the public again to to uh, entrench um, a victory as, as Wilson did. Um, I mean, the the big dynamic shift here, and obviously you were talking about it at the top of the show with Kieran Andrews, is Scotland. Yeah. I mean, because that changes the dynamic of a hung parliament. If Labour have to rely on the Lib Dems rather than the SNP, well, that is a much less sort of constitutionally uneasy position yeah. to be in because the SNP, of course, would be and extracting actually, further the devolution. SMP, the not... SNP's collapse helps Labour, you know, if they do have a total collapse, but it also helps the Lib Dems. They could, they could pick up some of the seats they used to hold, which puts them in a stronger position as well. Right, absolutely. And... Um, yeah, I mean, just thinking about how... Because the Tories will try, understandably, to do a sort of coalition of chaos thing, but Keir Starmer in Sir Ed Davies' pocket uh, is, is not going to have quite the purchase, well, I think. Mainly, presumably, Daddy, because people just be looking and thinking, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> yeah, I, do, I do think one of the one of the impacts of, um, I don't know what people are calling what's happening in Scotland, the motorhome gate or whatever the <laughs> right phrase for it is, is that if the SNP appears to people on the wane in an election, it just makes that line of conservative attack less potent everywhere. Yeah. Henry Zeffman and Daniel Finkstein there, and you can read the stories they were discussing. Uh, just hit the links in the podcast description to read it. You'll need to subscribe to The Times. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box. Up next, it's Zombie Knives. this was the extraordinary moment earlier this month when a 15-year-old boy was stopped by police in North London 
during a routine stop and search operation, and they discovered he's got a two-foot-long machete in his trousers. I mean, it's genuinely a shocking, uh, a huge weapon. He was, he's been charged with possession of an offensive weapon in a public place, and is due to appear in court uh, next week. It was one of just uh, many cases uh, we see of this. Lots of these videos obviously being posted on uh, social media. Well, today the government's trying to do something about the problem of, still, of people still being able to buy threatening weapons like machetes and so-called zombie knives. Uh, here's the policing minister, Chris Philp, speaking to Times Ready Breakfast earlier. All of these kind of lives should, should not be legal. Uh, they often cause very serious injuries when they're used, much more serious injuries than, for example, a kitchen knife because they're often serrated on both edges or they've got jagged edges that cause serious internal injuries. And they're also used to intimidate people, for example, um, in muggings. So we feel they, they, should, be, um, they should be banned and that's what we're, um, what's we, what we're doing with today's announcement. Well, we've heard similar announcements before. In 2016, the Home Secretary, Theresa May, announced a ban on their sales, saying there could be no legitimate reason for anybody to need one of these. In 2017, the Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, announced a new tough crackdown on the sale of killer knives. In 2018, Home Secretary Sajid Javid unveiled a blitz on knife sales with the Offensive Weapons Bill. Then in 2021, the bill became law as Home Secretary Priti Patel announced that anyone found with a zombie knife would face the full force of the law. Today we're going to take a look at the bigger picture of knife crime, with 45,000 knife-related offences recorded last year. We're going to talk about the damage it's done to families around the country, and we'll try to find some solutions too. Let's start by speaking to David Wood, the Times' crime uh, correspondent. Hi, David. Hi, thanks for having me. So explain, first of all, because it sounds like a ridiculous phrase, what is a zombie knife? So these are ornate knives. Uh, some of them can be large, small, but they are characterised by having a serrated edge or a cutting edge. Now, they can be bought online, they can be bought in stores, but the problem is police officers, police forces are concerned that young people are getting hold of them and they're being sellers are using them and disguising them as large knives rather than dangerous weapons. So the government's closing a loophole today, or talk it to, holding a conversation about it, to, to seize the knives. What, what is it announcing? What other rules is it, uh, the government laying out? So it's two-pronged. So essentially, uh, police chiefs had been concerned that the Offensive Weapons Act 2019 wasn't broad enough to cover machetes and zombie knives. So essentially, the government now want to include that in this new law that they're consulting on, but also make it an offence for anyone caught selling, manufacturing, supplying, but also selling to children. Anyone caught doing either of those elements could face up to two years in prison. And you were talking about buying them online or in shops. Where can you buy them? And are there rules about who can buy them? So, meant to be over 18 yeah. and provide a, a photo ID, like a passport or driving licence. But Increasingly, we're seeing them being sold on the dark web, uh, on, I uh, don't know if I can say it, can I? <laughs> on, on social media, yeah, yeah, on yeah. sites. I know my colleague uh, two weeks ago found um, sites uh, on TikTok uh, purporting to sell them for as little as £20. Um, when you look at some of the videos, they have QR codes and they can click through to Telegram uh, chat groups and these are encrypted uh, messaging platforms in which... You could see testimonials from people saying how they're grateful for these knives and, yeah. you know, reviews, so to speak. And so just take us through the scale of the problem we're talking about. It feels like we've been talking about this problem for such a long time. Take us through the figures 
How much has crime, knife crime in particular, increased? So you mentioned the 45,000 yeah. figure in England and Wales. Uh, that's of police recorded uh, offensive with knives and sharp instruments. Having a look at some ONS data, and uh, that was published in February, it showed that 95% of police forces in England and Wales had seen an increase in recorded offences with knives and sharp instruments. Again, a closer look at the data, I think it was West Midlands Police had yeah. 5,006 in 2021. Uh, and that was the highest out of all police forces. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you look at the offences per 100,000, they were the highest. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 170. So it wouldn't be quite often talk about it being a London, it feels like a very London metropolitan police, mm. but actually it's, it's spreading across the country. And actually, it's worth pointing out that the Met has seen a decrease uh, in knife offences. And how, how is, there, is there something, partly because they've been at the front line of this for such a long time, is there something that the Met are doing that other forces can learn? Is it, is it as straightforward as having more police, which obviously there's a, that's a separate conversation going on about replacing the police numbers that were cut? So, there's, again, it's two-pronged, because yeah. I think you have to look at demographics, you have to yeah. look at where um, some of the social and economic uh, um, problems that are facing different communities around yeah. the country. But I think it goes back to having more police on the streets. I yeah. know that the government have had this drive to reach an extra 20,000 by, I think, the end of this month. Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I shouldn't know. Yeah, that it's very... It is. <laughs> <laughs> Can you see it? But it's very... There are, yeah, they're, 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 they're sort of inching towards meeting that, yeah. that 20,000 target. But some will say that's not enough yeah. because you've seen cuts to PCSOs. You've yeah. seen, you know fewer beat bobbies as we call them yeah. in local areas and that's kind of your core response team is what people see day in day out they're the ones responding to crime and i suppose like that video and of which there are loads but that particular video that you and i were watching yesterday of this yeah. clearly very young lad who looks terrified yeah but at least the police call him with the knife and no one got hurt was if the police weren't there there's a chance that he would hurt someone or you know he gets hurt by someone else so you need, but you need the police officers to, to catch people before anything bad happens. I think that also goes back to stop and search. Yeah. So that's a, a quite a polarising yeah. um, police power that has been used against uh, black, Asian, minority yeah. commun communities, but also white communities. It's worth pointing that out. Um, I think we need to go deeper into this. I think what you said, like the video you and I watched that went viral yeah. on social media, you saw this young boy's life yeah. essentially flashing before his eyes and, you know, he's um, due to be in court, so that case is active, so I can't really talk yeah, yeah, too yeah. much about it. But you see what the officers purportedly pulled from yeah. his trousers and that's part of the reason why I think the government are trying to move. And in fact, even the police at one point say to him, this is a, well, he swears, but he says, this is, a, this is a bad situation, but are you okay? Because yeah. clearly he, he's a very young boy whose life has been completely changed by the fact he was carrying this thing. Mm. David, it's really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for that. That's David Woodley, the Times' crime uh, correspondent. Uh, let's hear now from Anna Firth. She's a Conservative MP for South End West. You'll remember that her predecessor, Sir David Amos, was fatally stabbed in October 2021. Since she entered Parliament, she's been campaigning for the government to make these changes on the sale of so-called zombie knives. I caught up with her earlier and asked her if her if uh, Sir David Amos's death had inspired her campaigning. 
obviously, you know, uh, that's that's never far from my mind. Um, we all remember what an amazing and fantastic MP um, and champion for South and West Sir David was. But uh, knife crime uh, has been a problem uh, in South End on Sea, uh, as it often is in seaside towns when you get people coming down for the uh, for the weekend and 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 bringing offensive weapons with them. Uh, and and I noticed an uptick in the knife crime figures over the last couple of years. While serious um, and violent crime, you know, has gone down nationally by 38 percent, that's good news. Knife crime in particular went up from 21 20 in 21 by 8 percent. And then the latest figures uh, for 22 percent show it going up by 9 percent. So knife crime, sadly, is is is, is stubbornly uh, slightly on the rise. But it, it um, was put into stark focus for me over the Christmas period. Between Christmas and New Year, I was contacted by a South End police and informed of an incident where a 17-year-old had bought a two-foot zombie knife, uh, a zombie knife machete, I'm sure you're aware, they're extremely dangerous, uh, heavy, sharp knives. He bought this online and had it delivered to his door in Leon C. Now, luckily, the carer uh, opened it and was horrified and called the police and they came. Now, um, they did remove that knife because the carer said that they were to, but if they hadn't had that instruction, it would have been very difficult because the knife had no violent images on the blade or the handle. Now, obviously, successive governments have tried to ban zombie knives clearly they're banned in a public place but we're talking about in a private place yeah. but when i looked into this um i saw there was a worrying loophole in the offensive uh, weapons act um to th- the amend the amendments to it that were made uh, i think in 2021 because a zombie knife was defined as needing a straight edge a serrated edge and this the, the and violent imagery on the blade or the handle so and the reason the reason for that was to try and not catch uh, people having knives in their kitchens for doing cook it, you know, perfectly straightforward, you know, legal reasons for having knives. The, the the distinction being that these these zombie knives had things essentially markings or you know images in on on the handles, and that's how you caught them, so that they were distinct from being something you'd have in the kitchen. Yeah, I mean there there are often uh, there there are often you know very good reasons for why legislation is drafted in the yeah. way that it is at the time. But unfortunately, uh, reckless retailers and manufacturers are are clearly yeah, exploiting this. Yeah, they've just stopped this. putting that imagery on there. Yeah, they're stopping putting the imagery on there. I mean, these are these, as you know, are, are nothing like kitchen knives. No. These are two foot long, with the blade itself being eighteen uh, inches long. Um, and you know, these are heavy things which are which have which cause serious harm and have no you know no no application in the in the home or the garden. They're not garden machetes. These are designed machetes for causing harm to people. Uh, and if you do a simple, I'm sure you have. If you do a simple Google search for uh, zombie knives, you'll find all sorts of uh, websites coming up with names like weapons galore. You know, websites that glorify these type of weapons. And it, it, this needs to be dealt with. And you've been speaking to the Home Secretary, Swell Barfman, about it to try and get this, this loophole closed. What, what do you yeah. hope to see come from uh, this consultation and what the government is doing uh, to try and close these loopholes that you've identified? 
so there's there's two things and 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 yes i mean i i've been i've been i've been very very pleased because as soon as i came back after christmas break i took this straight to the home secretary she got it immediately i took it to the policing minister he got it immediately i've engaged with the home office as well i've raised this multiple times now on the floor of the house so i i'm pleased as a backbencher that we've got a government which is responsive and listening uh, uh to backbenchers concerns so what what are, so this is a consultation so obviously i'll be taking part in that consultation yeah. but i want to see two things first of all i want the definition of zombie knives machetes changed i want this requirement that they have the violent imagery removed because the danger in them is not the violent imagery you know, it's the size, it's the weight, it's the sharpness uh, and that serrated edge. Those are the features which are uh, which are key. Uh, and the second thing is uh, it's not just about the definition. It's about the way these are sold and the fact that they are being sold online to minors. So obviously, uh, uh, retailers are supposed to be uh, asking for ID. Mm. You know, it, it, it's not legal to sell these uh, these things to uh, minors. So there's got to be a crackdown. Uh, and this is Section 141 of the Criminal Justice Act. There's got to be a crackdown on how these are sold. Uh, a, ID must be shown at the point of purchase. But more importantly, I would say, ID has got to be shown at the point of collection. I would say for a, a, there's there's no reason whatsoever for these to be sold mm. um, in the UK. But if there is some you know bizarre reason why certain people who are hunting certain things um, need them, then it's they we've got to enforce the law that they should only ever be sold to people over eighteen. And I I would say that if you want something as dangerous as this, it should be licensed, and you should have to go and pick it up and show your ID that you are of the appropriate age. Um, just finally, Anna, you touched on it in the beginning. This issue of of how it's the, the knife crime and uh, in particularly social uh, seaside towns, coastal areas, quite often it's seen as being a thing that happens in London. People, you know, maybe because the media is based, you know, a lot of the media is based in London. People, you know, see the videos of metropolitan police stopping people with big knives and so on. Just give us a sense of how this actually goes far beyond London and Birmingham, big cities, and into um, towns, coastal towns across the country. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to unduly you know, worry listeners that this yeah. is an, an enormous problem and that people shouldn't bring their families to fantastic uh, coastal cities like Southend or Of course, sea. sorry, and it is now um, a city. But, it is now a city. I need to remember that. It is a city. Exactly. <laughs> but we did, we, we, we have had horrendous incidents and there was, there was one a couple of... Uh, years ago, where uh, where you know two gangs were were fighting each other, and a and a machete was used, and and somebody was uh, uh, was stabbed and killed because the, the thing about these knives is they're they're so heavy and they're so sharp uh, that they do you know they do immediate colossal uh, you know terrible damage to people. So um, so you know it, it has been a problem uh, in Leon C, and the police you know do find these things when they do sweeps when when you when you have uh, gangs coming down on the train uh, and the police are called we have you know very 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 good policing uh, but then they do a sweep afterwards you know these dangerous machetes are then found in bushes so we've got to get them out of people's homes we've got to get them off the streets but most of all we've got to stop these dangerous weapons mm. being imported and then being sold to minors online. Uh, that was a Conservative MP, Anna Firth, uh, the MP for South End West. Uh, her predecessor in that seat, of course, was Sir David Amos, who was fatally stabbed in 2021. Talk to me about her campaign to close the loopholes on so-called zombie knives. 
uh, on the end of all of this are real human stories. So let's speak to two people now who've lost uh, family members to knife crime. Uh, Olamidi Wole Madriola uh, joins me on the line. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you're, you explain what happened to your, your son, Malcolm. Mm, what happened to Malcolm was uh, just an unfortunate incident. Um, it was uncalled for. It was not necessary. It was uh, something that had been prevented, actually. Um, Malcolm just uh, just left college, which was supposed to be his uh, last week, precisely. Um, and they saw the crowd outside Clapham Station, you know. And uh, just witnessed like um, a scuffle going on between um, a young man who actually turned out to be one of the school uh, students. And uh, he saw two men attacking the young man, and everybody was running away and they were wielding their their knives, uh, not just knives, blades, long blades. Uh, and he ended up being the victim, actually, and they got stabbed instead of the young man. They intended stabbing uh, while he was trying to stop them from stabbing the young man. Um, it happened too quickly, and uh, I just say uh, an unimaginable thing, mm. having to see young men going about with swords and calling themselves students. It, it has nothing to do with him. It's just, just an innocent young man, uh, so fortunate. And the, the boy who killed Malcolm, Thomas Brown, was, I mean, he was using a nine-inch blade, but he'd been caught with a zombie knife before, hadn't he? That, that's the ridiculous thing, actually. Um, he's, he's, he's gotten access to 15 of such blades. He's had 15 of such blades. He bought them online. He kept combining it. He, he actually said he gave out uh, one or two or three to friends and he sold some. And uh, that, that, that's a different story from uh, him being caught earlier. He was caught earlier and left off the hook. And uh, that's one thing I kept on saying that if the punitive measure on people who are caught with uh, such uh, uh, dangerous and uh, and, uh, and 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 terrible uh, uh, arms like that are, mm. are, are very serious. I don't think Ma Malcolm would not be alive by now because the, the the young man will have been dealt with. He will have served as a as as a, as a lesson to others. He will have found himself probably still in jail or something. Mm. And Malcolm will have still been alive. Um, uh, thank you for sharing that. There's a story of uh, uh, Malcolm who, who died in South London in 2018. Let's bring in, uh, stay there, but let's bring in Lynn Baird. Um, Lynn, uh, you lost your son, uh, Daniel, in, in 2017. Uh, t t just tell us his story. Good good to have you with us. Uh, uh, good morning, yes. Uh, yes, July 2017, July the 8th, um, in the early hours of the morning. Um, he'd gone out for a drink, uh, to celebrate getting his new job. Everything was looking absolutely fabulous for him. And um, he was in an, um, it was definitely unprovoked because uh, we, we still don't know why that person did that. But um, he was just smiling outside the pub and uh, this person came and stabbed him and his friend. And that was it. Uh, the pub just closed the doors. There was no ambulance called. No police were called. They just left him to die in the street. 
And um, how, I mean, I was going to say, how's how's it been for you since that? I mean, your your experience of of crime and knife crime before. I mean, was this just sort of came completely out of the blue for you? Just completely out of the blue. Well, nobody expects anything like that to ever happen no. to any of their loved ones. And I, I'm I, I'm still shocked now, you know, because I think, and that's probably the case for most of the uh, bereaved families, you know, it still feels like yesterday sometimes. And tell me about, so you started the Daniel Baird Foundation, trying to, <laughs> and I know out of the awful things, you know, people try to, to get some sort of positive out of it. Explain about the campaign you're, you're, you've, you've um, launched, calling for the rollout of bleed control kits. Explain what they are and why you think they should be made available. Oh, bleed, bleed control kits. I mean, this, uh, I knew for a, for a fact I would not be able to get bleed control kits out in response to knife crime. There's no way that would have happened. So it was mainly about catastrophic bleeding, which I started to research more mm. or less from the day we lost Dan. Um, and it turns out that uh, traumatic bleeding is the biggest killer of under 45s anyway. And over 2 million people a year bleed to death. So um, I thought, is there something we can do around that? And uh, eventually, <laughs> I have to cut it short, uh, by the end of 2017, by December, November 2017, the first bleed control kit was sent to me. There were no bleed control kits in this country at the time. We didn't even know they were going to be called bleed control yeah. kits. And, um, you know, it contains a, a trauma bandage, a tourniquet, a chest seal, some compressed gauze, chito gauze, which is made from shrimps, shrimp cells. I can't say that very well. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually causes a clot and stops the bleeding within seconds. You know, so it's a very simple kit. And I was helped to get this all designed by uh, West Midlands Ambulance Service and the National Trauma Networks. So it, it, it's very, very simple. Mm. We had a training session last night and that went very well. So we're rolling these things out like mad in the West Midlands. And the idea being about essentially the sort of speed is of the essence, that if you you, you can get can treat quickly, then it then it helps. Olamita, just to bring you back in uh, on this, what have you made of the government now is talking about, you know, tightening up loopholes and, and so on. Do you think that this can just be done by government in changing laws or do we need to rethink... Is there a broader sort of social problem that we need to address to try to work out why really young, just seem to be mostly boys, seem to feel the need to carry these awful knives? Oh, like, um, I was going to bring uh, Olamide there. Oh. If, thank you. For me, for me, actually, um, knife crime on its own has its uh, is root cause be. Uh, beyond the, just burning the knives, actually. Yeah. Um, you've got quite a lot of uh, issues at the root of that, and they are quite inexhaustible. Um, for me, a lot of issues that are associated with that. You have the social annihilation, which uh, the young men will want to capitalize on and join the gangs, as we call it. I mean, you have austerity where you have uh, young men being uh, treated into going into drugs issues and all of that. And uh, 
But most importantly, that is the issue of the judicial deficiency, which is what I would call it um, uh, in terms of punitive measures. That is a very critical issue that must be tackled beyond just banning the knives. When you ban the knives, what happens to the knives that are in the warehouses? What happens to the ones mm -hmm. that are in, in stock already? What happens to the ones that are on the street? And when you don't have uh, right laws, it doesn't make policing to be effective, actually. Uh, so uh, for me, I, 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 I think I will say that is the right step in the right direction, though we might say it's a little late. I won't say it's belated. Mm. I don't know why we will wait for hundreds of young men to be to be killed before we get to this stage. We've been talking about this. We're, we started a foundation in honor of Malcolm, and we've been yeah. doing quite some 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 stuff about uh, getting this right um and one of the one of the things that uh, we achieved was uh, when we participated in the violent crime summit and i was with uh, the pm from a pm uh theresa may who took up one of the suggestions we made and uh, it made some very good uh, uh, she made some very good effort in making the minister of justice having more um more resources than they were having before now, before then. But the thing is, knives are everywhere. Yeah. Go to Amazon, go to eBay. The knives that got my son killed was sold for nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. Pounds. And, uh, and 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 that was not that was not necessary at all. So um Conclusively, I will say that the government just need to go beyond just banning it and making sure that they are off the street and they give way yeah. by making sure the right laws are made that so that the police can do their job effectively. Olamide, it's really good to speak to you. That's Olamide Wole Madariola, whose son Malcolm was killed with a nine-inch blade in South London in 2018. Also really good to hear from Lynn Baird there. Uh, her son Daniel was fatally stabbed outside a pub in Digbeth in 2017. They both launched uh, foundations in their, uh, in their son's names. Uh, the Ma Malcolm's World Foundation and Daniel Baird Foundation as well. And we'll keep across uh, whether or not uh, well, the, the outcome of this uh, consultation the government has uh, launched today uh, into closing some of these loopholes around something. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from so you don't miss any future episodes. And to subscribe to The Times, just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.